welcome back to Conversations on Communism. Since the last episode when we were talking to Colin Chambers about communism and culture in the 1960s and 70s, we've been doing a little digging into the life and works of the Australian-born British communist poet Jack Lindsay. Just to give you a flavour of his writing, here's the poet Caroline Bird reading Jack's poem In the Wild Surf. The billow arches and turns in a cavern of tumbling gold. Arch your young back and ride, gaily trustful and bold, the curve of the elements in a shared strength and pride. There by the green dark rocks, as the tide ebbs out, there swings the undertow, ever more near. How warn you of cruel things, when the heart needs confidence? Must I sow suspicion and fear? I see your uplifted face in the hurrying light of the wave. Akin to the wildness, you go. That's the one comfort I find. I can do nothing to save, counsel, or tell what I know. Out of one depth curls the wave. From another, you rise up clear and meet the bright, dangerous day. Cut off on the barren sand, I can only love you from here where the wind blows my words away. In the Wild Surf was inspired by Jack's daughter, Helen Lindsay, who as a child in the poem was swimming in the sea just off St Ives in Cornwall. I managed to track down the grown-up Helen, and uh, we met up one rainy afternoon to talk about her father in a busy coffee shop in Greenwich. I mean, the thing about Jack was he was incredibly loyal. I think he believed that you would struggle and work and talk and and engage, you know, whatever his troubles with the party, and they did exist, or always, really. I think his method was just to go his own way. And one of the interesting things about the MI5 files is there's an awful lot of criticism of Jack in the telephone calls that go on between people in King Street and, and, and they're sort of complaining about this and that. And there's one where they oh, he's a terrible organiser and he was treasurer of some group and he wasn't doing it properly. And I was thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised because he would, he would have been absolutely rotten on that sort of thing. He just did his own thing. He wasn't an organiser. He wasn't that sort of a political activist. His method of dealing with a subject was to write a book about it. So when he and my brother used to argue a lot about politics, and um, and then Jack wrote Crisis in Marxism. Crisis in Marxism was published in 1981, and in it, Lindsay writes about the Marxist tradition in the 20th century discussing such revisionists of Marx's thought as George Lukács and Antonio Gramsci. In particular, he takes issue with the jargonistic language and ideological abstraction of the Marxist philosopher Louis Althusser and his fellow structuralists. He believed that their work was symptomatic of a heightened level of alienation, which he, following Marx, understood as the estrangement of people from their human essence. This estrangement, or alienation, was perceived by both Lindsay and Marx as a natural consequence of life in a society divided along class lines. But Jack did not only write scholarly works of this type. In fact, the bulk of his writings are novels, often historical fiction, and then of course his many, many translations of the Greek and Roman classics. He was an extraordinarily versatile writer, 
and a gifted linguist. Although Helen tells me his spoken Russian was not so strong, he was an extremely sensitive reader of the language, and in the 1950s he produced two anthologies of Soviet poetry in English verse. During the Cold War, Lindsay was something of a cultural go-between. His was a voice that defied the Iron Curtain. Not only did he translate modern Russian poetry, but he also reported back to Britain the latest news from the Soviet Writers' Union. In 1968, the Soviet government even acknowledged his cultural work with the award of the Znak Pochota, the Badge of Honour. I sent it to Australia with um, his other stuff. Oh wow, oh, okay so it's in Australia the, this, the Badge of Honour. The actual ones there, yes. Um, uh, it's that was very good of you. <laughs> well, I thought, you know, if I leave it at home and I'll, get, I'll lose it or something. Before we met, Helen had told me about a trip she remembered going on as a small child to the Soviet Union. She also mentioned something about a mysterious Russian bank account. It was 69 that we went, and we went because, that, um, really, because there was a lot of money in the bank account, and it was a way of spending it. And, and I think they, because you could, of course you couldn't take money out of the Soviet Union, and so they offered us, um, Jack didn't want to buy anything, because he wasn't interested in buying anything. I think he, yeah, he already had a camera, for a Russian camera. I think we had several Russian cameras. But, um, uh, and, and so we had a holiday. We had um, nearly six weeks. This is money that he'd earned. Absolutely. No, it was, yes, no, it was... From, from book sales? From book sales, yeah. yeah. This is a thing that I don't think many people know, and I certainly didn't know until quite recently, is that... Obviously, if you think of how big the Soviet Union was, and also the emphasis on improving literacy and, and, and cultural activity um, being pushed, then all, there's a huge, huge market for books. Jack was selling a lot of books. He was, he was, absolutely. And, and um, there was a private eye joke that he was the biggest selling author in Outer Mongolia. <laughs> yes. Oh, wow, was, I've got to find this. Yeah, stuff. no, I'm not quite sure when that was. I do remember him telling a story of how he took a taxi and, and for some reason the taxi driver worked out his name and, and said, oh, yes, I've read your books, all right, whatever. You know, and, so, and that was his you know, way of saying, you know, even the taxi drivers are, are literate and re interested in reading and, and would, you know, would actually you know, be pleased to be driving around uh, you know a foreign author you know because we flew from um, Moscow to Gariga or near Gariga anyway because we went we did stay in a writer's hotel in the Black Sea for about a month he always worked I mean he took his typewriter with him and he worked wherever he went so for him it was it was a trip and we went and um, but he'd be there typing away. <laughs> I mean, he was available. You could go and talk to him, but it was like, well, why would you? Because that, he's doing that, you know, and and so you'd be off doing something else. So he wasn't, you know, he he was just very focused. And he always said they never learned to drive because he wouldn't. He'd crash straight away because he'd be thinking of something else. So he'd his mind was. Um, just very in that 
I mean, you write, you know what it's like. You go into that state, don't you? Yeah. What, the place where you are, where you're writing, what you're writing about. It takes about 45 minutes or two pints in quick succession to kind of break out of yes. the day's writing. Yes, absolutely. You can be in a weird daze. Well, I think he was in that sort of stage a lot of the time. He was in, it was all happening and the things were, the stories were going or the ideas were shifting. And so when he, when he talked to us, it was, it was only half there. Did you ever meet your grandfather Norman? No. So Norman left the family um, and Jack would have been about seven or eight I think um, and you know he, he was the eldest he had two younger brothers and their mother went up to Brisbane to where her sisters were and I think Jack had this had an absent father thing you know so he had this famous father who he didn't see for you know at least a, you know more than 10 years who he knew was famous and you know and then I think wanted his admiration and interest and um, and I think it took him years to get over that so Jack's relationship with his father the famous Australian artist Norman Lindsay was strained to say the least there is a deep and matter-of-fact sorrow in Jack when it came to his father. This is well captured in his poem, To My Father, Norman, Alone in the Blue Mountains, here read by the poet Hannah Silver. Though you, in your hermitage of cold and scornful stone, of tranquil and ruthless light, refuse to accept these pages, what other name can I write over the arch of the ruin made my sole monument? Your rejecting word I ignore and call up your name once more, though you will pay no heed, though you will never read these words in your mountain lair. So long for you alone I wrote, all my thoughts I bent on you as friend and foe so long, no name I know but yours for this empty space, now Ray and Phil are both gone, and the spiralling fury of time bores remorselessly on. As a bitter tribute then, take these pages that strip me bare in death's thin, bleakening ray. Turn for a moment, I say, turn from your obdurate place in that clarity of stone, that terrible folly of light. Turn for a moment this way, your abstracted face. Jack collected quite a lot of art. I mean, he he um, he bought a Picasso. You know, when he had no money, he still bought pictures um, in the 30s, and um, he bought lot. He also bought lots and lots of classical pottery. Um, and he had a huge collection. He had a collection of classical pottery. Absolutely massive. Uh, what kinds? Anything, anything. Did you ever knock any over when you? <laughs> no, they were all stored away in his study in great piles. Um, Greek and, pots with yes. the, with the mythic figures on. And Absolutely, sort of yes. Um, Egyptian little mummies and little figures, and then quite big pots, sort of um, Minoan and I think Roman. I mean, any. I think he would just get what he could afford. I've heard about his library. Um, Colin Chambers told me that um, he, because I think he'd visited yes. a few times, and um, he said. Yeah, when you went to his house, there's this enormous library with more books than you could... <laughs> Absolutely. 
absolutely everywhere apart from the bathroom. Father had four major relations. For, for a quiet man, he did quite well with women. Um, uh, so he had four major relationships in his life. My mother really was really the last. But Anne, who died, really they bought the house together in Essex. And um, it was a sort of single story mainly. It had one room halfway off the stairs and another room at the top but the rest of it was quite flat and um, it, he just put books up everywhere uh, and it was none of it was proper it was all sort of because there was a lot of beams and then he just nail a few supports in and put some shelves and there'd be more books on and and so that it just you can you could see that they it, it had just grown you know they went all the way down the hall they were in in the living room in his study in the bedrooms and they were floor to ceiling they were li really really everywhere I had a sudden memory about a week ago I think it must have been you know going around in the back of my head that I was coming to meet you about when I was at primary school and I used to I used to all, I used to have this game about Greek goddesses and I organized the my you know peers I think it must have been only girls I can't imagine any it would have been any boys into into gods and goddesses and made them all into Hera and Zeus not Zeus but you know Phrodite and sort of Artemis and you know <laughs> and so he must he must have, I mean I must have got that from from Jack, obviously. I mean, I don't know. I don't remember him specifically talking to us, but I think he must have told us those stories. Aside from the Greek and Roman myths, another lurking presence in the Lindsay household came in the somewhat shady form of the British Secret Service. For decades, they kept tabs on Jack, and in so doing, produced reams and reams of official documentation on his activities. As tactfully as I could, I asked Helen that awkward question. Was your dad a spy? Well, I don't think there would have been any point because he wouldn't have had anything to tell him, you know. Um, I, yeah, of course it's crossed my mind, but wouldn't have been in his nature. Um, it's not that he wasn't secretive, he, he was a bit secretive, but not in a way that was unethical if you like yeah. um, he was deeply deeply ethical yeah I mean it, I have wondered about it because I well, particularly even if you look at the number of files on Jack there's a lot of paperwork and you think oh for God's sake what's the point but actually I think there was a point and I, and I think as I said to you I, in the email I think you know a lot of it was around tracking people so they could find out about other people and it does say that in one um, bit of the files because we had our post open for years decades and um, there is a, a just a little note with a justification because every so often the they would have to, a uh, special branch I think it was, would have to say why they were still asking to have the post stopped and, and it says something like, you know, this post thing has been revealing of a number of other 
sources and mm. is interesting because it allows us to see you know what's going on in other groups so I think it was that and they did so there were a number of people that Jack did correspond with who may have had some spying because that's how they found people so they found they they were they initially made contact with Jack or or he became known to them if you like because he wrote to Tom Whittingham you know who was known to them for his activities so you know it was all everybody linking to everybody else I believe that it was also because they were constantly on the lookout for people they could turn if you like so somebody like Spender was incredibly useful to them because he represented somebody who supposedly had been left-wing and now didn't really believe. And, and I think that's a far more powerful message out there in the world to people, oh yeah, I've been through all that, but of course it's all rubbish, and now I've seen the light. And I, and I think they were constantly on the lookout for people who could be manipulated, used, whatever, in that, in that way, um, helped. So they would support people. It, it might not be out direct, you know, but they could just, you know, gently support. But also, I think there are an awful lot of informants. So, you know, the, those those two strands, really. You know, I, would you inform in your fellow left wingers, yeah. or would you actually are are you going to sort of just shift? publicly right words and you know they sort of help they would help you along the way and I, I, I think both those things happen. What they also might have been doing is perhaps um, if you just gently apply pressure you know you um, you make someone aware that you're watching them and you and you make them you know they, they obviously know why they're being watched and then maybe they start to curb their behaviours, that's one way. And then another is um, that, in fact, so it's kind of like a kind of bullying presence. Self-censorship. In your article, actually, yeah. um, there's that brilliant letter which says nothing at Absolutely. all. Absolutely, the BBC, it? no, it, it doesn't, it, says, it just, we're um, informing you. We're informing you that Jack Lindsay uh, is, known, is known to us as a, thing, as being a, a, a communist. Yes. And we have, we have been informed that you, he, has, well, he has written a show yeah. for you or something. Yes. And then yours sincerely. Absolutely. It's, it's fantastically uh, nothing. I mean, I loathe to use the word establishment because it's been so ill-used these days. Um, you know, but, but in the, I think in its older and truer sense, the British establishment, um, I think that's how they they functioned, you know, they functioned without having to say, everybody knew, everybody knew what everybody meant. So you didn't need to say it outright. You know. It's just you exert yeah. your silent power. It's Absolutely. Power. It's incredibly effective. Mm. Absolutely, uh, um, you know, and useless as well, um, because you know, it knows exactly where its interests are. In the era that Jack was under surveillance, the Secret Service wasn't acknowledged as existing. And because it wasn't acknowledged as existing, it could not be held 
under any legal powers. In many ways he was ahead of his time. He was vegetarian since the 30s. Um, and although he had strains of, you know, generational maleness, if you like, he, he was more of a feminist than, than many men are these days. You know, I mean, he... But I think it was, he had a, a very deep sense of equality. Thank you for listening to Conversations on Communism. Next episode, my co-host, Dr. Eleanor Taylor, will be back and we'll both be talking with Professor Richard Seaford and Dr. Ben Harker about the communist classical scholar George Thompson.